microbes are so important. If we didn't have microbes, nothing would would happen. And, and we rely on them as humans to help our bodies to function. We rely on them for the resources that they can provide us with. You know, you, you look at phytoplankton, they provide us with 50% of the the oxygen that we breathe. So if we didn't have marine microbes, we wouldn't have anything. And so I think there has to be a real push within science now to maybe think about microbial communities and climate change. Welcome to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, hosted by me, Charlie Young, and me, Mad St. Clair. We're two marine biologists on a quest to elevate the voices of our fellow female scientists. Each week, we'll be diving into a new and exciting piece of research authored by a leading woman in marine science. From fisheries biologists to chemical oceanographers to PhD students and researching mamas, we'll be hearing from the pioneering female researchers of today to put a new spin on scientific publications and smash down some gender stereotypes in the process. So tune in every Monday for a podcast that champions the research of lady scientists and shines a positive light on the work being done to protect the ocean. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Women in Ocean Science podcast. Marine mycology, have you heard of it? Because today's guest is here to encourage women and girls to get into and pioneer the novel research area of marine mycology. And she's here to show the world that being a marine biologist isn't just about splashing around with dolphins and turtles. So what is marine mycology? Well, also known as the branch of biology concerned with the study of marine fungi, today's podcast guest Cordelia Roberts is a second year PhD candidate studying the interaction of these fungi with marine snow particles in both open and coastal oceans and even in the polar seas. Today we'll be chatting through her paper titled Chytrid Fungi Shape Bacterial Communities on Model Particulate Organic Matter, And before you click off because it sounds too complex, Cordelia does a fantastic job of breaking down exactly what this means and why it is such a cool field of marine research. Cordelia, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing this morning? Hello, thank you. Um, Yeah, really good. Um, It's not very nice weather where I'm here, but I'm I'm still happy because I get to talk about science. So yeah. (laughs) Cordelia, I've got to say you're already a podcast favourite because every single opening to this podcast, Charlie and I always follow up with a comment about the weather. So (laughs) (laughs) you've already (laughs) smashed it from the beginning there. Uh, Can confirm also grey out here in London. Charlie, what's going on in Bristol? Well, I hate to break it to you, but we've got beautiful sunshine. Oh, what? <laughs> I think I think this bad weather's coming for you, Charlie. Oh. Like it's gonna travel up the country. We had such bad wind last night. So Brilliant. I think it's gonna come So did we. I look forward yeah. to it. <laughs> My window was shaking, it was absolutely mad. Mm. Cordelia, where are you based at the Moo? Um, I'm in Plymouth, so usually it's always sunny and it never rains. love it I was down in Cornwall this weekend and it was beautiful so tropical here stunning well guys I hate to say it but the weather is not what has brought us together this morning (laughs) it is actually a tiny little microbial organism and today we're going to be discussing chytrid fungi shape bacterial communities on model particulate organic matter 
um, which is a paper by Cordelia um, and quite interestingly is on freshwater environments, but we are going to be talking about it in the context as well of the same applications within the marine environment too. So um, yeah, we're really excited to discuss this with you today, Cordelia. Um, can't get my words out this morning, <laughs> really struggling there. <laughs> but would you um, would you like to start off by um, giving us an abstract-like summary of the paper for the podcast? Basically, microbes are super, super important in aquatic ecosystems, be that freshwater um, or marine. And they're really important in cycling organic matter. So, for example, if you think about um, if you if you went to a lake or a river and you saw things like floating in the water that might be leaf debris or branches or even sort of dead zooplankton. So these dead, tiny little um, organisms that that live in the water well they were living at one point and now they've died <laughs> um, they harness um so much carbon and and we talk about how important carbon is particularly in in the anthropocene so this this changing environment with climate change and we're always looking at ways that carbon is cycled um, and so microbes are super important in doing that and we know that bacteria have a role in this and we know that fungi have a role in this, particularly on land, but this hasn't really been translated across into aquatic ecosystems. So basically, I took a chytrid, which um, you may know um, if you're in the amphibian world as causing this mass die-off of frogs and newts and, and toads, but they're also really good at degrading organic matter. So we basically took these chytrids and we took the bacteria and we threw them together in a little flask and, and we sort of tried to see what would happen and whether this could um, change the bacterial community and what we actually showed that if kitchens are present it can change the bacterial community so yeah so basically we ha we think that they're ecosystem engineers that allow other organisms to sort of colonize um, a particle in this case by producing public goods so um, in this case we give them chitin which is what shrimps are made out of it's a really sort of hardy substance in the water and we know that not a lot of things can degrade it but fungi definitely can and so these public goods are um, basically produced from from the chytrids and released to the bacteria and they they wouldn't be able to degrade the chitin themselves so it sort of um, provides them with something and it sort of feeds into this evolutionary hypothesis called the the black queen hypothesis which is really cool so it basically suggests that um over time an organism might lose the ability to do something because it becomes lazy because it knows that another person is uh, another person or another organism is going to do it for them hmm. and so we basically suggest that this is going on with um, bacterial and fungal communities and that we have evidence that chytrids are able to do this but because they're so unexplored in freshwater and marine environments um, we basically suggest that people need to go out and explore them more and um, just really work out what's going on. It pretty much sounds like that's what's happening to humans, this black queen hypothesis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We've become yeah. completely reliant on, you know, so many things doing things for mm. us. It's, um, yeah, I think we're probably the perfect example of that. But let's take it back to, you know, the very, very basics. Um, so we have these microbial communities. What are they composed of? So it's bacteria, fungi, um, would you include any plant-based matter? Um, within a microbial community? Yeah. Yeah. So definitely bacteria, 
definitely fungi, which actually microbial ecologists are really bad at um, missing out fungi. So it's quite a new <laughs> thing and um, to be considered in aquatic ecosystems. Also, archaea is another one, which is, uh, I like to call them glorified bacteria. I'm not, <laughs> there is a difference. I'm not solely sold on what that difference is, but they're really interesting um, characters. So they do things like ammonia oxidizing, which not all microbial communities can do. But um, when you think about like plants, they do have their own like microbial communities. Like everything that you see has its own microbial community. We have our own microbial microbial community. The table that I'm sat at probably has its own microbial <laughs> community. The ocean has its incredible microbiome that just nothing would work. If, if it didn't corals have their own microbiome which is amazing so and so this particulate organic matter why is it such a hot spot for bacteria and fungi oh that's such a good question um so it's really just this enriched i mean palm um is basically this just enriched mass of dirt and um dying stuff but it's just there's just so much there in that um, in that tiny little space. So if you think about um, the ocean, and ninety percent of it, it's pretty like clear. If you're like diving in a nice country, or <laughs> if you maybe went, so I don't know, um, Charlie, if you saw what the ocean was like yesterday, mm. and it was just really grotty, yeah, and quite it was snotty, just, yeah, yeah, so that sort of like particular organic matter or sediments suspended in the water. And so they're just really enriched with nutrients like carbon, um, phosphorus, nitrogen. That's just like there. Whereas in the water column, if you just like took a, a drop of water, there would be probably dissolved organic matter in there and like things flo floating around that you could see like plankton or phytoplankton, zooplankton. But that's such a concentrated environment within the ocean, whereas actually most of the other stuff is pretty scarce. Like it's just sort of like around and dotted around and everything's super patchy. Like the ocean is very patchy. And so, yeah, it's just a great hotspot for bacteria to be on. And it's a hotspot in terms of these nutrients. It's a hotspot in terms of diversity. They're, there's super diverse spaces in there because there's so many different things that they can be feeding off. And mm. actually, I think they can just feed off each other as well, particularly <laughs> with this public wow. goods thing. <laughs> yeah. And all you can eat buffet where you eat your friends. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what that, that's basically what's going on. Yeah. I love it. It sounds, it sounds great. I'd love to come back as one. Marine <laughs> <laughs> bacteria. Um, and so let's talk a little bit more. You touched on carbon cycling. So POM is also sometimes referred to as marine snow in the ocean. Yes. Um, can you explain to us the importance of marine snow, um, you know, in the context of the global, global carbon cycle? Yeah, so um, marine snow has such a special place in my heart. <laughs> um, I love it when people ask me that question. Um, Maybe you should also explain what marine snow is yes, as well. Yes, sorry. Absolutely. So um, if you are in the surface ocean where it's light and it's sunny um, and you have all these available nutrients and you have this microscopic algae, at some point something becomes limiting and unfortunately they die. And so they sink out and they produce this um, 
really sticky substance, which is called TEP. So that's transparent exopolymeric substances or polymers, and also EPS, which is exopolymeric substances. So there's there's a couple of like different ways to describe that, but it's very sticky. So that means when they um, begin to fall out of this light zone or the, or the photic zone, so that's like sort of the top, I don't know, 250 meters of the ocean, give or take where you are in the world, and they sink out and it means that they can like bump into each other and they can stick together. And basically they fade from the classic green chlorophyll heavy phytoplankton that they were originally into this sort of dark, milky, white, sort of color and then they look like snow and you get these great like huge snowfalls and um Rachel Carson who you girls probably heard from writing mm-hmm. she's written Silent Spring Silent Spring yeah and she did a lot of um marine books as well and she writes in one of her books um The Sea Around Us about the most stupendous snowfall that the world has ever seen mm. and the way that she describes marine snow is, is so beautiful so I definitely recommend if people are interested in marine snow, and I can convince you to be interested in it, <laughs> that you should read that. But it basically just falls from from the, the surface to the deep sea, and it's integral in transferring the carbon that the phytoplankton lock down when they're photosynthesizing into the deep sea. Now, actually, a lot of that doesn't end up in the deep sea. There's microbial action that grazes on them, that remineralizes it, and then it allows it to sort of either um, stay within a a band of around 250 meters to a thousand meters and actually by 250 meters it it seems to be that about 80 percent of that carbon might be gone but it's sort of touch and go as to how much is really there because it's just such a really understudied thing and it's Mm -hmm. really difficult to try and to measure that but if it can reach the deep sea then it's locked down for hundreds thousands of years hopefully Mm -hmm. And so um, that's obviously what happens to particulate organic matter in, in the marine environment. But for this paper we're looking at at the moment, you were looking at uh, a marsh pond in Plymouth in the UK. What, what does particulate organic matter look like in, and what is the role that it plays in, in this kind of environment? So it's, um, it's still a relatively similar process in terms of it still phytoplankton dying or zooplankton dying so there's the these water fleas daphnia which are made of chitin and they're prime substrates for these kitchens to attach to and sometimes they even parasitize them and 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 then cause them to die and then colonize and and then degrade this chitin so the marsh that I was looking at was kind of very small but it's still the same process of taking that carbon from the atmosphere that being locked down in a in a phytoplankton cell, which then might be grazed on by a daphnia, so these zooplankton, and then just sort of like sinking it into the sediment. And it, it's just this transfer of nutrients from one one thing to another to another. And I mean, even in, in the marine environment as well, you still have this connection to the wider food web, so fish grazing or whales grazing on, and obviously we're not going to have that in a marsh. <laughs> Um, if we do that, new scientific discovery altogether. But <laughs> it's that transfer of nutrients that's super important, um, mm. and more so, I guess, in a freshwater environment because you don't have that depth um, to sink out to. Mm. 
And so, you know, in your study, you've kind of zoomed in on that even more. And and I guess, you know, reading this paper kind of really opened my eyes to processes I've maybe not even thought about is, you know, how these chytrid mm. fungi are shaping these bacterial communities. And then I su- suppose the, you know, the knock-on impact on on the decay process of, you know, mm, yeah. this, this uh, particular organic matter being broken down. So I think this is a brilliant time for us to kind of jump back into this paper and kind of discuss the methods. You touched on it at the beginning, um, but it would be brilliant if you could, yeah, give us a little bit more um, of an in-depth explanation about how you went about doing this. And please explain to me chitin microbeads. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> what are these? Yeah, so they're pretty neat. So I guess if I like sort of take a step back and, and talk about um, – so the title is about model particulate organic matter. And it would be great if we could do all experiments with um, with real life things. So real life marine snow or real life lake snow, as it sometimes gets called. But it's so difficult to control what's in there. They can be really um, heterogeneous. So just made of tons of different things. And we can't pinpoint and say, okay, well, this marine snow particle has X, Y, and Z in and be able to know. Mm. Um, so we love in molecular biology and, and molecular marine mycology and microbiology to use models. So we use this model um, particular organic matter of chitin microbeads. So chitin, as I said before, is like super important um, source of carbon in the ocean and, and not a lot of things can degrade it, but we know that fungi have chitin in their cell walls. So it's a pretty good thing to say that a chytrid will degrade chitin. And we know from sort of genomes that, um, so like the genetic code for the, for the whole of the organism, that they can degrade chitin. So we used chitin and um, zooplankton are often made of chitin. So shrimps made of chitin. So it's really abundant yeah. in there. So we use these chitin microbeads and they're magnetic because um, I, I don't know the, the, the true purpose of being magnetic, but I think their original application is something to do with trying to collect proteins of some kind. Um, but we love to reinvent and, and recycle <laughs> things. So basically it allowed us because they're magnetic to, to be able to put them in a, in a tube of water um, and then to take the water out um, and keep the magnetic microbeads by keeping a magnet on the side. So it's just kind of like handy methodological wise. Oh. Um, but basically what we ended up doing was we took these microbeads and then we took some natural pond water communities and we sort of got rid of anything else that was going to be too big or maybe sort of try and disrupt this um, experiment such as like other eukaryotes um, which could definitely have a role in carbon cycling and and the communities but we weren't looking at that specifically we wanted to specifically look at these chytrids so we had um, three treatments we had a control which was just pond water and the microbeads. So this allowed us to see what does a bacterial community do on these microbeads um, when there's no one else around? What do they do? How do they develop? Um, and what does their bacterial diversity look like? We then had another treatment where we had these zoospores. So um, chytrids are interesting fungi because they're actually motile. So it means that they can swim around and so cool. before they settle. I saw this in the paper and I thought, wow, that is so cool, <laughs> swimming yeah. fungi. So they kind of look like uh, little sperm cells almost and they just like wiggle around <laughs> for a few hours 
and um, they're chemo tactics. So it means that they're trying to like sniff out um, a substrate mm. or something. So they're like, mm, what can I smell? What can I smell? <laughs> and then they're like, oh, I'm going to settle on this. So um, that's what they did in, in this um, treatment. They settled on these chitin microbeads. And we wanted really to sort of look at um, differences in these life stages as to whether, you know, the zoospores and the bacteria were competing for a substrate, whether that would impact the community. Um, and then we had this third treatment, which was the established chytrid. So we allowed a chytrid to establish on this bead. So they have these super impressive rhizoid networks that just look like um, neurons and actually um, there's a, another PhD student in my lab that was doing a lot of work on rhizoids and and how do they how do they work what what do they, how do they even grow and what do they grow in response to and he was using this neural pathway um, tracking network which so they they do hold like a lot of um, sort of synergy to to neurons wow. um, but they're kind of like this precursor to um, like hyphae that you'll see in fungi that grow underground and yeah. these impressive rhizoid networks. Um, so yeah, so we tried to get them um, to establish and, and, and they did. So they established for 24 hours. And the idea of this was that if they were degrading the chitin into its um, broken down form, so it's, it's a big fancy word, it's <laughs> N-acetylglucosamine, <Whoa>. um, <laughs> call it NAG. <laughs> Thank you. I um, love that. <laughs> so um, if they were breaking down chitin into this NAG, then hopefully we would see a change in this bacterial community, which would mean that the bacteria could use this NAG without actually having to expend any energy whatsoever on degrading the chitin themselves. So that's basically what we did. And then we did some sequencing and worked out who was there, and we tried to do some predictive metagenomics, which is also really cool to work out what they were doing. So, yeah. So you talk, you, you spoke about um, different life stages of um, the chytrids. So how, how do you define the different life stages of a chytrid? Is that just having the presence of the rhizoids or it, are there very distinct life stages of, of this microorganism? Essentially, it's it's to do with the rhizoids. So, basically, this specific species, so um, Rhizoclusmatium globosum, has a life cycle of around thirty four hours. So, it's it's also an ideal model organism to be using because we can run it really quickly in the lab, um, in this sort of experimental setup. So, we have fundamentally four life stages. So, we have this zoospore; they're swimming around trying to find somewhere to settle. Um, and they just have a little tail, so a flagella that sort of wiggles around and propels them in this sort of random, almost directed motion with the chemotaxis. And then it will settle down. And then we think this flagella falls off and then it grows out this really impressive um, network of rhizoids, but only a little, well, a little bit initially. And we, we refer to that as the sort of like settled zoospore, immature thallus. So the thallus describes the um, sort of the blob or, or the head of this um, sperm-like cell that's that's landed. And then that grows in size and also the rhizoids grow in size and then they become gravid. So they have all these tiny zoospores inside that they kind of make and then they pop and then they all swim off. My God, it sounds terrifying. If you like just made this, <laughs> if you brought it up to life scale, can you imagine? 
be absolutely <laughs> terrifying, but so, so fascinating. And, you know, this, this is, you know, this paper has been a bit of a voyage of discovery for me, learning quite a lot here. Um, mm. And amazing that you had um, this model organism that you could run in short, such a short space of time to be able to do uh, an experiment like this, because usually it doesn't work like that. Um, no. <laughs> So let's come on to the results and kind of the wider applications now of of what you found. What would you say were the key results of the study that you thought were the most interesting findings? Well, there's definitely sort of like two really interesting results. So one of those is about, um, or maybe like three. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) three is great if there's four. (laughs) There's three. Okay, so the the first one and this is really just sort of like fundamental is that the diversity when chytrids were present increased. So when we're seeing these fungi that are present on these beads, we just see an increase in diversity in comparison to, to the normal bacteria only, which I just thought was really awesome. And, and I wasn't really sure if this was going to happen, um, whether it was going to be di- dominated, but we love to hypothesize and we hypothesize that this could potentially happen and it did. So it's always great when your results yes. match your hypothesis. <laughs> and then also, even within this diversity pattern, we see this like middle ground between the control and the established, where the zoospore kind of mirrors the established ones, but only to a certain extent in the later um, time mm. stages, which I just thought was kind of really interesting that we had this middle ground that happened. Following on from that, we saw that the structure of the bacterial communities um, sort of converged. And this sort of showed itself in this diversity data, but also when we're talking at the the community structure level. So we displayed this um, in an NMDS plot, which is kind of like really technical getting down into the stats, but it basically (laughs) allows us to visualize something in a 2d way that actually works in sort of like a 3d way so it allowed us to um look at that and i thought it was really cool that we see this synergy between the bacterial only treatment and the zoospore treatment initially look very similar and then this zoospore treatment becomes more similar to the established treatment but even still this established treatment so these chytrids that have colonized and and hopefully been degrading um, the chitin into nag and, and creating this public goods pool and um, still stood out alone which just sort of shows I guess the the importance of these chytrids being here like it does dramatically change this community of bacteria and so the wider implications of that is if we're not considering fungi when we're talking about carbon cycling or we're talking about how microbial communities work more generally then we're, we're potentially missing part of the story here Mm. and so I guess kind of like circling back to this question about hot spots of diversity that marine Mm. snow are initially people only ever considered bacteria on there and so we're saying that the factors to do with why they're so diverse um, or why they're hot spots well initially yes it's this they're nutrient rich environments they're they're just these little pockets of, of goodies for them within the water column well hang on, here's fungi saying that actually we're increasing the diversity of bacteria here. So maybe maybe it's fungi on this marine snow that's that's leading them to be a hotspot of diversity. That's so awesome. Wow. And I think is an interesting contrast to kind of, you know, why 
many people might have heard of um, chytrids. You know, you spoke about at the beginning how, um, I'm going to try and say it, chytridiomycosis is impacting amphibians and causing mass mass die-out. And that's obviously a negative impact of this. But then looking at it in the context of our oceans and with particulate organic matter, it's actually increasing these bacterial communities and, and as your paper suggests, is kind of contributing to these places being hotspots for, for bacteria. And so it's it's really interesting that this is kind of, that they play such an important role and this is a positive of having um, these fungi in the, in the oceans. And it's something that is quite new to me. I don't know about you, Mads. Yeah, this is completely kind of new um, field of science for me, which is why it's been absolutely mm. lovely to chat about it today with you, Cordelia. Because I haven't done this since my undergraduate degree in biosciences when I did microbial ecology. So yeah. that was a while ago now. So it's it's really, really fun. Um, and I think, you know, my next question is, you mentioned briefly, you know, what if we are now thinking, you know, these fungi are playing this role in sequestering carbon? What, what happens then? What's the next stage in the carbon cycle if these fungi are sequestering the carbon? They're dying after 36 hours. Are they then you know, continuing to exist as particulate organic matter that might potentially be eaten by a fish? What's kind of their role then if they are sequestering this carbon in the ongoing cycle? Oh, this is an excellent question, Matt. I love this. (laughs) Uh, It's kind of um, two sort of things for that. So when we think about the oceans, it's really important to say that fungi and marine fungi are really understudied so a lot of what we have to go on comes from freshwater fungi so chytrids specifically I mean chytrids are just one type of fungi but they're pretty neat so let's just talk about those for a minute (laughs) on on the basis of chytrids there's been some work done um which shows that they're really important in this transfer of nutrients so actually so so they're colonized on a substrate They'll grow, they'll get really big, fat and juicy. We like to call them big, juicy boys. <laughs> so, yeah, I have these, so much love for that. <laughs> so these big, juicy boys, um, and they, they grow and they, and they get gravid and they've got all their zoo spores. And then 34 hours, they um, make a little split in their, in their cell wall and all of these tiny zoo spores fly out. So during this 34 hours, they've been degrading um, this, this chitin, for example, they've been degrading that, they've been munching on that, they've been getting fat and juicy with this carbon. And then there's sort of a couple of things that can happen. So they can be then grazed upon by um, things like Daphnia, so a zooplankton, or they could be grazed on by fish, or even the sort of, we call it necromass, so like the, the dead and the dying part of this chytrid, which after all of the zoo spores have fallen out, um, they're just sort of like left like a, a dead body on this bit of chitin. <laughs> that can even add to that particular organic matter. So then that becomes almost POM. It's just like another layer of POM on POM. <laughs> POM, POM, POM. POM, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, POM, 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 some big boys. <laughs> I have got to say, I love all of the abbreviations in this study. Pom, Dom, Nag, Juicy Boys. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I really wanted to get that in the paper, but, you know, my supervisor just wouldn't let it fly. So. 
so they can either become this this pom themselves or they can yeah transfer nutrients across to um to fish or zooplankton and then obviously they graze so that's called the myco loop so we think that we well we definitely have evidence for that happening in in the freshwater environment so we know that the freshwater myco loop exists um and so now it's sort of like moving forward is translating this on into the marine environment so trying to get evidence that this happens in marine zooplankton that they're sort of grazing on mm. on chytrids um that uh, fish are grazing on them and then this allows us to sort of get a better idea of what fungi are doing in the marine environment and then how we can begin to include them in things such as like carbon modeling which obviously the carbon cycle happens um and there were there are likely changes that might be happening over time but it's probably pretty consistent with how it works but we have still these massive massive gaps in where carbon goes in the marine environment and so the more sort of pieces that we can add to this puzzle then the better and fungi is definitely one of those spaces where they could um help yeah it's so oh god i'm just i'm having i'm having so much fun i'm sorry but this is brilliant um and so you know we're just starting to discover the importance of marine fungi in the carbon cycle and my next question is then are there any threats to chytrids um, you know, do we do we know if they're being impacted by climate change or are there threats? We know that they obviously have an impact on amphibians and freshwater ecosystems, but are there any threats to chytrid fungi? That's a really good question, and I have no clue what the answer is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I love that sh- short answer there. <laughs> it raises a really good question because when you think about um people doing research on climate change and um, looking at larger organisms and and trying to work out what the role um, that climate change has and how they're changing. Mm. We strip it back to fundamentally the most important thing. I mean, I'm a bit biased, but also this, you know, microbes are so important. If we didn't have microbes, nothing would would happen. And, And we rely on them as humans to help our bodies to function we rely on them for the resources that they can provide us with. You know, you, you look at phytoplankton, they provide us with 50% of the, the oxygen that we breathe. So if we didn't have marine microbes, we wouldn't have anything. And so I think there has to be a real push within science now to maybe think about microbial communities and climate change. And A, how can we utilize them to help us out um, with the way that we're destroying the planet? And B, what is actually happening to them with climate change? How are they yeah. um, facing um, increasing temperatures, increasing pH, um, increased ice melt? So freshwater and this um, freshwater melt coming off in the Arctic, which I know there is some cool research going on with that and seeing how microbial communities change. But one thing that we sort of can get an idea on is, or, or like a way that we can do this is to begin to look at how the function of a of a bacterial community change so we can we can gather data on that and we can run that in experimental setup but we could also run that over sort of a long-term kind of thing where people have been taking um, samples and water samples over time and if we continuously go back to the same place and use that as a long-term site can we see if the function of that community is changing with rising temperatures or increasing ph or there might be other factors that are at play there but it's definitely something that we should do and I'm an advocate for. 
I just love microbes. Cordelia, <laughs> you've actually done the impossible today and you have actually swayed me into um, thinking that now I might want to go off and study a PhD on these little guys <laughs> because yeah, yeah. I have strictly been, you know, I, I'm a megafauna girl um, and just chatting today, I, I remember when I read your paper first, I was like, mm, microbes, not really my thing. But now I'm thinking they could be my thing. <laughs> yes. And I think just people aren't exposed to microbes and aren't exposed to how exciting they can be. You know, you just have to sort of anthropomorphize them a little bit and get big people like big juicy boys. Yeah. Juicy like boys. <laughs> get them involved in that. Yeah, and you've made these amazing little short stop motion animations um, to describe your research, which I really must go and have a watch. Where can we where can we find these? Oh, um, so they are on my Twitter, which is um, at Codipoc, so C-O-D-D-I-E-P-O-C, the P-O-C standing for Particulate Organic Carbon, <laughs> which is kind of sad, but also very exciting for me. No, I love it. I love it. So awesome. You know, we've spoken heavily about your paper. What we'd love to do now is maybe speak a little bit more about um, you and kind of what you're up to now. Um, so, you know, this paper's on freshwater. And as we mentioned, you're now doing a PhD. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what your PhD research is on? Yeah, this paper came from my master's work, which um, I was really fortunate to be offered a PhD within the same lab um, at the Marine Biological Association. So, now I am looking strictly at the marine environment and how um, fungi are important in controlling the biological carbon pump. Um, so the biological carbon pump is basically the name that we give to this marine snow sinking um, and all the processes that might be involved in that. And so I'm basically trying to work out what fungi are involved in this process. So who are we finding on marine snow? What are they doing on marine snow? Are they doing this public goods sort of thing? Or um, are they doing other things? Are they changing these particles? Are they increasing settling velocity or how fast these particles sink, which is a really important measure of how quickly that carbon can sink out of the photic zone to the deep sea? Are the marine snow particles themselves providing maybe like a vector or a, a transport mechanism of fungi to the deep sea? So um, I didn't say earlier, but marine snow is also really important in feeding the deep sea. There's no light down there, so um, they can't photosynthesize or there's no sort of photosynthesizing organisms that we would consider to be this traditional food web. So they're super important. So are they providing this uh, sort of transport of, of even sort of um, pathogens almost? I mean, I'm I'm just sort of like thinking of these things off the top of my head because <laughs> th there's some stuff... Um, that we just really don't know about fungi. And so I'm just really trying to convince people that fungi should be considered when we're thinking about carbon cycling. And um, I guess opening up some questions to the field to say, okay, well, fungi are here. What's going on? Could could something be going on that's interesting and important and providing a sort of, uh, yeah, a piece to this puzzle of um, carbon cycling? Awesome. That sounds absolutely brilliant. And I think we will definitely have to have you back on uh, to discuss that piece of research when you More when you publish that paper. Boys. <laughs> yeah. Big juicy boys. Yeah. So that um Amazing. And so um 
before we go, we would um, love to get some closing words for you. Sorry to put you on the spot, but we ask all our podcast guests if they've got any <laughs> final last bits of wit and wisdom to share with our listeners. Um, can be on absolutely anything you want, but some inspiring words, please. <laughs> oh, inspiring words. No um, pressure, but inspire us. Okay. <laughs> so my inspiring words are um, just like if you're interested in something and you want to pursue it and you don't know how you can get anyone else interested in it, always know that your enthusiasm will will take you there and it will get anyone who you want involved in it if you're just passionate about it so get passionate about big juicy boys <laughs> um, that, that's my wisdom get passionate about big juicy boys and I always say this to everyone before I say goodbye to people I just say make good decisions so yeah I that's love that so so much and you are proof of the pudding here with how you've inspired both me and Mads to fall in love with marine fungi yeah. i mean i am totally hooked now and i think it's brilliant and we can't <laughs> wait to have you on again um so you know if anyone wants to go and stalk you and to find out more about your work where can we find you are you on socials yes i am so my twitter is where i'm most active about science so that's at Codipoc. and i do have instagram so you're welcome to follow me on there that is mainly about me spending every single day in the ocean <laughs> so I swim <laughs> every day I, I set this goal that I was going to swim every day this year and oh so that's at Coddy Pots so C-O-D-D-I-E-P-O-T-S so yeah come and follow me there and if anyone's ever down in the southwest I am more than welcome to um, go for a swim and also um, teach teach you about marine microbes <laughs> <laughs> I Whilst love it swimming I love it two for one <laughs> you see that tiny speck there in the water well that's actually <laughs> colonized by a special type of chytrid bit juicy you joke but I've definitely said things <laughs> like that in the water before <laughs> love it okay then well on that note guys uh, see you all next week bye been listening to the women in ocean science podcast brought to you by women in ocean science and hosted by me mad sinclair and charlie young if you enjoyed the podcast don't forget to give it a share and you can find us on socials as at women in ocean science we are a non-profit organization so every like comment share and bit of support goes such a long way in helping us to elevate the voices of the women working to protect the ocean and helps us to continue on our mission thanks for tuning in guys and i hope you have an awesome week <laughs>